Good morning, Oz. Good morning, Richard. How are you today? I am great. <laughs> How are you? Not, not bad at all. Cheers. So it's an absolute pleasure and privilege to have you on today. You're one of the all-time leaders in your variety of fields. For those that don't know who you are, Richard, how would you describe yourself when people ask you what you do? I always say that I'm an investor and uh, a writer, an author, uh, which is largely true. So that's, that's what I do. I, I have been an entrepreneur once in the sense that I was actually part of, co-founder of a consulting business. Uh, and I like to describe myself as an entrepreneur, but it's not really true because the people who are doing the hard work are the people who are actually uh, running a company. So I do the easier thing, which is to, um, to select and invest in uh, companies, but I'm a very active investor, a very uh, close, uh, colleague in a way of the people who are actually running the business. Uh, not that I get in their way, but I do think about the business and talk to them about it. And so I think that's a very, um, it's a very gratifying thing to be able to do that occasionally. And uh, those guys, all the guys who are running my companies, I'd like to dedicate this uh, podcast to them. Um, Oz, would you like to tell us just a little bit about yourself so that the listeners know who's asking me the yeah. questions? Sure. So, um, first and foremost, a family man, happily married with two girls. Um, then over the last 20 years, I've been doing business consulting and strategy. First 10 years of my career with a big consulting firm. Uh, the last 10 years have been focused more on healthcare and strategy. Uh, that's helping both big and small firms. Um, I also do lecturing and coaching and have a real interest in uh, achievement and enterprise uh, also an aspiring author where I've been writing a book of late um, with the same title as my podcast, Unobtainium. Great. OK, well, let's see if we can be Unobtainium in this particular interview. <laughs> what would you like to ask me? To warm us up, can we do some quickfire questions? Uh, yes, the answers might not be quickfire, but <laughs> the questions can be. All right, super. Cheers. Thanks. So you're trapped on a desert island and you have a choice of three things. It can't be people. What would they be? Oh, well, I have to ask you a question. I mean, I'm always fascinated by this mythical uh, desert island. I presume it has no electricity. Well, I, I guess you could ask for electricity, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, if, if there's electricity, that would be the first thing. And then I suppose the second thing would be my iPhone, not that I use it for making telephone calls very much, but I love the music which is on the iPhone. <laughs> That's what I use it for. And I think having a library of, of uh, music would be, uh, would be very, very important to me. But I think you should disqualify that answer because uh, I don't imagine that many desert islands actually do have electricity. So I just have to ask you one other question before letting you know. Yep what my three things are. How big is the island? How long would it take, for example, to walk round the perimeter of the island? Uh, you can tell you're a management consultant by background, <laughs> Richard. Um, but it's as big as you want it to be. All right, then in that case, I will have a bicycle as one of my things. If it's big enough to cycle round, uh, a cycle is essential for um, sanity and also for yeah. um, exercise. So I'd, I'd certainly have a bicycle. Uh, and the second thing which I'd like to have is a, a house and a garden. <laughs> so uh, a very nice That's house and practical. a very nice garden. So then that would be uh, that would be terrific. I don't want to be bumming on the beach, thank you. Uh, and then the third thing I think would be the collected. No, not the collected works. I would say Edward Gibbon's magisterial work from the late eighteenth century, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. I remember reading that one when I was 18 years old and it absolutely inspired me with the breadth of the vision and indeed the very strong wit, very, very dry wit and the fantastic construction of the language where Gibbon has very, very long sentences with lots of um, sub-clauses but he never loses the thread in that. And, uh, and of course, the Roman Empire, absolutely fascinating uh, and lots of parallels with today's world. So um, I couldn't I couldn't wish for uh, a better book. And I strongly recommend the book to anyone who is locked down at the moment. It's uh, it's a fantastic, uh, very long read and uh, very, very uh, satisfying read. 
Super. Your biggest idol as a child? Well, I didn't really have one, Oz. I mean, there was someone who helped me and gave me a lot of, of hope. And I don't think I'm that unusual in this because uh, we tend to remember some of us are teachers who believed in us and uh, were, you know, instrumental in perhaps sparking curiosity and sparking a bit of self-belief in us. And I, I was actually, I was a difficult child. I was, I was reckoned to be relatively backward. I don't think I was backward because one of the things which I did was to invent my own little language, but I was a very lonely little boy um, and uh, isolated, I suppose. And there was a teacher in my first school, well, I suppose when I was, I went to school when I was five, six years old. And I can still remember the guy's name and I can still picture his face, Mr. Toy, spelt, I even know how to spell it, <laughs> it had an E at the end, T-O-Y-E. And uh, I'd, I think if it hadn't have been for him, I would never have been any good at school. And uh, so I owe him a great a great deal. I'm sure that he's dead now, but uh, perhaps someone listening to this will remember who Mr. Toy was. Mr. Toy from North London, uh, a very long time ago. But anyway, I'm very grateful it, to him. It's interesting, the whole idol concept. It is all about the amount of self-belief those idols give you, actually. So that's a, a great answer. Thank you, Richard. Um, Favourite annual event? Well, it would have to be the Cheltenham Festival, the horse racing festival at the beginning of March each year mm. uh, because the atmosphere there is fantastic. I'm a great fan of horse racing. I don't go horse racing as much as I'd like because I'm very rarely in the UK and I think uh, the UK is the place where I uh, like to go for, for my racing. The Cheltenham Festival, uh, as, as many listeners will know, is quite unlike any other horse race meeting that I've ever been to anyway, uh, in that it is almost... Um, the flavour of it is strongly influenced, perhaps even dominated, one might say, by the Irish people who come. And they come over from Ireland and they are such a mixed bunch of people. I remember being struck the first time I went to the festival by the number of nuns. <laughs> and you wouldn't have think, thought that nuns in their habits would be great fans of horse racing. But my God, they are. At least they are when they come wow. to Cheltenham. And it's such a it's such a wonderful atmosphere, or and it's an excuse obviously to uh, to drink a lot and to bet a lot and all the rest of it. But most <laughs> of all, to talk. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's yeah. a it's a it's a fantastic collection of people. So and the racing is fantastic as Super. well. Uh, so Thank yes. You. And we'll come back to this one later as well, given how much you move with the sun. Favorite place on earth, Richard. Oh, it would have to be where I'm doing this podcast from, which is uh, my home in the Algarve in Portugal. Uh, I think Portugal is a wonderful country, very nice people, fantastic food. It's not the most grandeur, sort of it has, doesn't have huge mountains, but it has lots and lots of, of very nice hills. And for someone who is English, it has country lanes, which you don't get, for example, in neighbouring Spain. Uh, because the Portuguese are a little bit like the English there. They tend to be um, very independent. They tend to like their own place, and they are not particularly gregarious. The Spanish are always gregarious, and they love to be where lots of people are. So even if they can't live in a large city, they tend to congregate in um, in, the, in sort of uh, their own particular districts. What's the, what's the name that they use for the um, the places where people go in Spain? I'm just asking my colleague here. Who's no? Uh, anyway, there's a there's a word for it, and someone will come up with it. But the but the botellón. Uh, sorry. Botellón. No, no. I'll, it'll come back to me in a minute. But the <clears throat> the thing about uh, the Portuguese is that because they like being in small places, there are loads and loads of small mm. villages. And of course, if you have a small village, you have to have a lane which connects it with other small villages and with towns. So I particularly enjoy cycling here because you can go on roads where there's almost no traffic, particularly these days, of course. But, but you know, yeah, you get these fabulous, fabulous um, lanes and you can get the lanes alongside orange groves, as I call them, basically orange orchards. 
And you, mm. all that you can see when I, I go on some of my rides is actually the sea and the oranges <laughs> and people's houses as well and the occasional oh. person. So I love Portugal and I love the Algarve and it has probably the nicest uh, weather in the world for year round. Although, as, as I think uh, we might touch on later, uh, I like the sun. And at the moment it's raining. <laughs> so so, it's, so a very, it's a very green place. I'm uh, guessing with the COVID pandemic on at the moment, it's been a deliberate choice you heading back to the Algarve? I was actually in Australia and I mm. got back with about 12 hours to spare before the, the shutters came down, wow. before the flights stopped and, and all the rest of it. Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a very nice place to be. Uh, thank you very much, Richard. So, Richard, um, I'm tremendously excited that you have a new book coming out soon with a massively bold title. If you want to go ahead and share what, what that's called. Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. Unreasonable, Brilliant. not reasonable success, unreasonable what? success. Unreasonable success. Fantastic. And, and, and now, over the years, I've been pretty happy with Earl Nightingale's definition that success is the progression of a worthy ideal. But building on that and the title of your new book, Richard, how would you define unreasonable success? Actually, I've got a definition at the beginning of the, the book. Um, I put a fake dictionary definition in and it has four meanings, unreasonable success. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll see if I can remember what, what the four meanings are. Uh, unreasonable success usually has all four attributes or at least three of them. And the first one is such success in changing the world that it might seem unreasonable for any individual to have such impact. Mm. I've always been struck was by the amazing fact that individuals can make such a huge difference at, at a grand level or at a micro level as well. And that seems to me to be the unique glory of our species so it's the impact of individuals and unreasonable success means that some people, for whatever reason, and I explore the reasons in the book, have a degree of impact on their world, which might be good impact or bad impact or indeed morally uh, indifferent impact, but nevertheless can achieve a fantastic amount. Obviously, not many people do this. But mm. it fascinates me when they do. So that's the first definition. The second is success that's unexpected and was not predicted early in the career of the individual. And yeah. one, one of the amazing things, I've selected 20 people in the book that uh, I think changed the world in some way. And those 20 people, uh, almost none of them were... Um, were favoured in terms of their background. There were, there were actually two who were. But the other 18 came from nowhere. And what interests me is, you know, why are people who don't start with a great background or, you know, come from obscurity, why are they successful? How do they manage to become successful? After they become successful, it appears to be inevitable. But of course, it wasn't. Uh, and so that's another important aspect of of unreasonable success. Thirdly, success that goes well, I love this one, success that goes well beyond what the individual's skills and performance seem to warrant. Mm. You know, I don't believe that successful people really deserve their success in, a, in of course, in some ways they do. Uh, and every successful person, almost every successful person, uh, believes that they're successful because they're a genius and they're wonderful and all the rest of it. If you actually study the history of any really remarkably successful person, you see that there are what appear to be huge elements of luck and chance in their careers. And they often get a break in their career that, that couldn't have been expected, couldn't have been planned, uh, but which makes all the difference. Uh, one of the things which, which does amaze me is that it's not about performance. And I think that's very hopeful for everyone. It's not about our performance. The people who were uh, incredibly successful who are in my book, with one or two exceptions, they, they actually were not as good in many ways on conventional criteria as their peers. They were not as competent, they were not as brilliant, right. and, and so on and so forth. But 
somehow, and that's the mystery of the book, somehow they were successful almost beyond what they deserved, if you want to put it that way. And then the fourth attribute, which I think is hugely important, is that their success was all based on leaps of intuition rather than on logic and reason. In other words, they were lucky because they were highly intuitive. And um, that is uh, something which I explore in the book. And intuition is not random, though. Uh, intuition comes from a deep knowledge of a very narrow sphere, usually. And there are various other attributes of intuition. Using one's unconscious mind to the full um, is, is the key to that, I think. And there are examples in the book of people who were... Uh, incredibly gifted because they were intuitive, not because they were they were brilliant. Albert Einstein's one of those, actually. I mean, everyone thinks he defines genius. Well, you know, when you look at his um, school record, it wasn't very good indeed. Uh, you know, early on, he was very weak in mathematics. You'd think to be a brilliant physicist, you'd need to be a genius at, uh, at maths. Uh, Albert's maths were very poor, and he relied on his girlfriend as uh, effectively his wife, to help him with um, his mathematical calculations. He failed to get into the Polytechnic in Zurich uh, on his first attempt. And the Polytechnic was by no means the best school in Zurich. So, you know, it's it's quite interesting. He, the, the genius of um, Einstein was the leaps of imagination which he made. And there were very good reasons for that. They were not random. But the, the, the intuition is often part of the answer in explaining why people who on the face of it shouldn't have been very successful actually were. Sorry if that's a long definition, long answer to your short question. No, perfect. So, you know, I'm, go I'm going to move on to the subtitle of the book. And I think you've, you've answered um, some components of this next question. So the subtitle of the book is How to Achieve It. And without giving too much of the book away, what are the key characteristics, habits, and attributes that make individuals unreasonable, unreasonably successful based on your research? So, you know, serendipity was there, leaps of intuition were there. Yes, I mean, it's a book about individual success. And I was mm. sort of fascinated by, um, in fact, put onto this by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, another uh, more eminent author, a more successful author than me, but he wrote a book called Outliers. And he tries to explain why individuals are so successful. And that's my mission as well. And he came mm. up with a theory, which is an, an interesting theory, and which definitely works in some cases, which was that these people who were successful very early in their career were exposed to a huge amount of experience in a fast-growing new field. And so, for example, he takes the Beatles as, as an example, and he says that they were a mediocre high school group, effectively, in Liverpool. But what happened to them was that they happened to go to the strip clubs of Hamburg, and they had to play seven days a week for eight hours a day. And so they accumulated a huge amount of experience in the new emerging field of rock and roll music or pop music mutating from um, rock and roll. And um, he quotes John Lennon, who says, we, we couldn't help getting better because we played so much and we had so much mm. experience. And he takes the case of Bill Gates, who happened to go to a posh school in America where they had computer at the time that nobody else had computers. And uh, he spent hours and hours on the computer and therefore learned how to code it and learned about software and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And that... Uh, from that, he drew out the thesis that you need 10,000 hours of experience, which is sort of basically <laughs> 10 years' work's worth in a new expanding field. The trouble with the, 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 that explanation is it doesn't work for a lot of cases. Yep. And so, so my challenge was, can I come up with something which does work in the vast majority of cases? Now, I had to qualify it and say that I was talking not just about success, but about uh, a high degree of success, unreasonable success, which makes it a bit easier. Um, and what I did was to go through the cases of all of the very, very successful people whose life stories I knew very well, either because for one reason or another, I'd learned quite a bit about them and I was fascinated by them, or in some cases, because I actually knew them. 
And so what I did was to say, what, what were the, the reasons that these, perhaps in many cases, unpromising people actually were so successful? And I went through about 30 or 40 reasons, possible reasons. And if it didn't work for nearly all of these 20 people or for all of them, I discarded it. And then I was left with nine attributes, which um, I made a little map out of. And I, I sort of imagined that they were visiting these landmarks, like being on a treasure hunt or something like that. And um, so I came up with these nine um, landmarks. And then each chapter in the book, in the main part of the book, is actually devoted to one of these landmarks. And the landmarks really fall into two different types of category. There are mm. what I call the attitude issues, which are not conventional. Uh, you know, everyone says that you should be positive and all the rest of it. No, it's much more specific than that. Um, um, for example, self-belief, absolutely crucial. You know, for some reason, these people, rightly or wrongly, and in many cases, really wrongly, came to acquire mm. a very high degree of self-belief. It didn't happen immediately. It wasn't something they were born with in most cases. But somehow, because of the way that they um, figured the world worked, and somehow because of some experiences that they had, or maybe just because they were very unusual sort of people, they came to have a very high degree of self-belief. And in the book I explore, you know, how it's possible for people to do that and come up with some uh, pointers for people who don't start with a very high degree of self-belief as to how they might develop that. Um, another of those attitude things is high expectations. You know, just expecting a lot from other people as well as from yourself. It's very unusual. Uh, and there are some people in the book who make a whole career out of that, such as Jeff Bezos, who... Basically, every, his whole career has been based around this idea of high expectations for himself and for other people, which doesn't make him an easy boss to work for. Steve Jobs is another uh, case in point. But these people expected the earth and more than that from their people, and somehow they managed to get it. Um, and if you couldn't meet those expectations, you were ruthlessly cut out of the team or the um, organisation. And uh, because people who have high expectations are quite unusual. And if you have someone in a team who doesn't share those high expectations, they can ruin the whole thing. Yeah. And, and likewise, if you get someone who is willing to adapt to what the team has in terms of high expectations, then they don't have to start with them. They basically fall into the culture and they, they adapt to it. But in a way, you want people who are uh, willing to go with the flow rather than everyone says well actually what you want is mavericks well in some cases you do but in many cases that actually is poison so that's another one of the the attitudes and I'll just i'll just mention one of the others which is thriving on mm. setbacks the the characteristic yeah. of nearly all of the 20 people that i identified was that they were failures <laughs> they were they were complete failures in some cases and uh but somehow they managed to pick themselves up and and have another go and have another go and have another go and eventually they 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 were successful and it takes a certain sort of person to do that and but but I'm also very interested in how you can actually develop that as a skill and it's mm. it's a little bit related to one of my one of the people that I admire from a writing point point of view uh, is the guy who wrote the book Anti-Fragile and Black Swan and, and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, great books. Yeah, yeah. and one of uh, Nassim Taleb's sort of, you know, key ideas is that you don't just want to be resilient, you actually want to be anti-fragile, which means that you like being broken in a way. It's it's. It, he says that the the excess energy generated from failure is often what causes success. And I think that's very, very true. Um, and the, the prime exhibit, exhibit A in this case, my lord, is actually Winston Churchill, who was a complete failure at just about everything for 40 years. And many times he was completely washed up 
he ended up in the in the late 1930s uh, in almost complete despair, completely isolated by his colleagues, uh, drinking very heavily, more more heavily than than even uh, his general um, uh, achievement. I I love the quote from Churchill, which says, I have taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. <laughs> uh, and he certainly lived by his, uh, his dictum there. Um, but he was right about one thing uh, that nobody else got right, which was Adolf Hitler was a, was a menace to the planet and had to be stopped before it was too late. And, uh, you know, he was warning what Hitler was doing, everyone else was saying, oh, no, 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 he's, he says he's got no more territorial ambitions, we can believe him, you know, we've been to talk to him, he's a quite reasonable chap, he's a vegetarian, he's, he's a wonderful chap. Uh, but, you know, Hitler knew what was, what was going to happen, and people remembered that in 1940, and when Britain was already at war, there was no choice, you know. If you wanted someone who was going to take on Hitler, there was only one person in the world who, who fit, fitted the job description. So Churchill, who was this guy who had monumental failures to his name, including, uh, you know, terrible military failures in, in the Dardanelles and, and earlier in the defence of Belgium in 1914. You know, this guy was, you know, you wouldn't touch him with a barge pole, particularly in yeah. matters related to military affairs. Uh, he was... He was uh, you know, he basically antagonised the miners and helped to cause the general strike in 1926 and took a, a hugely unpleasant view of that. He alienated uh, organised labour. Uh, he resisted the giving of a relatively modest amount of self-government to India in the 1930s. He thought that Gandhi was was uh, not quite as bad as Hitler, but 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 a menace to the planet as well, you know. And the guy's judgment was awful. I mean, he was a fantastic orator, but but you know, everything everything came together in 1940, and no one else could probably have defeated Hitler. Uh, and that was a massive achievement for for a, a massive failure. So you know, that's that thriving on setbacks was almost the the motif and had to be the motif because mm. even in the 1930s, even when he was really, really depressed, Churchill still believed that he could stop Hitler and still believed mm. that had to be done and felt a, you know, a transcendent calm, he says, when he was appointed prime minister because he knew what he, he could, that he could do it and, and that nobody else could. So that's another of the sort of attitude things. And then from what I've read, yeah, sorry, no, go ahead, Richard. Please. One thing he absolutely had, Churchill, was the ability to rest and recover and just move himself away from things completely. And that's almost kind of like the art of meditation, isn't it? No, absolutely. Um, well, he also had the, 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 the common sense to, when he was sort of banging his head against a brick wall, to stop and then go do something different. So he was a military failure as a general in mm -hmm. 1914 in defending um, Antwerp. Uh, but when Antwerp had fallen to the uh, Germans, always the Germans, isn't it? When, when it had fallen to the Germans, yeah, yeah. Um, he decided to get out of politics, uh, stop, stop being the, effectively the head of the Navy. Um, and he went to the trenches for six months. And <laughs> that... That seems a very counterintuitive thing to do. Mm. So he was, he was uh, I think he was a major, sort of not, not a particularly important person in, the, in it. And it just revived him. You know, he found the companionship. He found the, um, uh, just the unifying fact of, uh, which many people commented on, if they didn't get killed, they formed friendships which lasted for life because when you're under that kind of pressure, um, the other people alongside you are hugely important. He appreciated that, and and it just revived him entirely. And then, mm. in the in the uh, late nineteen twenties, he was excluded from the government, and uh, he was he he almost went bankrupt in after the Wall Street crash in nineteen twenty nine, and he had to keep ahead of his creditors. Well, what he did was he went off and did a lecture tour in the United States. Mm a gruelling lecture tour. It didn't go very well in some ways because he got run over by a car in Fifth Avenue <laughs> in 1930 and he had quite serious injuries. 
right. but but he sort of you know he bounced back as you said he bounced back he continued the tour he got back to britain bruised and battered a couple of years later but but nevertheless he'd done something different and it had taken his mind off the failures and he managed to stay ahead of his creditors as well so you know it's just incredible that you know it's it's a good tactic if 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 you have a disaster go and do something different that's my conclusion <laughs> from, from that one um but anyway i was going to say that, that there so there are some of these attributes which are questions of attitude but not as conventionally defined and then there are strategies that people do and many mm. cases they just stumbled across these strategies they weren't deliberate they were reactions to events and um one of the strategies which was common i discovered to nearly all of the, my 20 people was at some stage in their life they had what i called a transforming experience transforming experience meaning that they went into something which changed them made them different uh, and it could be a company it could be an experience uh, in, in one case in a concentration camp in another case the hanging of an elder brother completely transformed the man who became Lenin um, mm. and uh, it's it's an experience which changes people and gives them some insight or some rare skill or some determination and that uh, experience in business is very often going to work for a very unusual company which knows something that other people didn't know and that was the case for me in my career when going to work for the Boston Consulting Group and for Bain & Company when strategy business strategy had just been invented and the, you know these firms actually had a belief in the concepts that they used particularly the gross share matrix which I think is just a work of beauty and art and, and so on and so forth yeah. that on which I based the star principle and and various other strategies one of the greatest books ever written Richard I have to say <laughs> thank you Oz. I mean uh, it's, to say that seriously no I think it is a very good book but it's only a very good yeah. book because of the power of the concept mm. uh, at, which says basically if you want to be successful as a, as a business you've got to be dominant in your own particular market or niche and you've got to be in a very high growth market well you know it doesn't take a genius to work out whether or not any individual business qualifies that. And most, of course, don't. But the few that do are going to be very, very successful. And, you know, it just amazes me and that people... I've got to say, uh, it's made me personally quite successful in terms of the things I've endeavoured to achieve. Um, ha had a massive impact on my life. And I think it should be on everyone's bookshelf, actually. So if people don't have it, buy a copy now. The Star Principle. Yes, that's, thank you for the advertisement. That's very kind of you, <laughs> Um, but to back, go back to the transforming experience, mm. you know, people don't realise, for example, that Jeff Bezos went to work for D.E. Shaw and Company, which was a hedge fund when he was 26 years old. He was, he'd, he'd been working on Wall Street, absolutely despised and disliked the horrible people mm. who were work, working in conventional investment banks. And um, a headhunter sent him to go and talk to David Shaw, who'd started a sort of countercultural kind of um, investment organisation. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't sort of, you know, people didn't turn up to work in sort of sharp uh, suits and, and um, you know, pink shirts or anything like that. Mm. They came in jeans or shorts and T-shirts. And they, for the first three years of the life of D. Shaw and Company, it was housed on top of a Marxist bookshop in the west village i mean it was it was, wow. it was it was different and but the thing about it was it was very highly quantitative and uh david shaw had been a professor of finance somewhere uh and they knew something that other people at that time and this was the early and mid 19 sorry 18 sorry 1990s uh, not very good at centuries 1990s <laughs> uh and they knew that the internet was going to be massive and that it was going to be massive commercially, which other people just didn't realise in 1992 or 1993. And 
David Shaw and Jeff Bezos were kindred spirits. They were both off the scale bright. They were both introverts. They were both incredibly determined to be successful. And um, David Shaw and Bezos worked together on a project which they called the Everything Store. And the whole idea of it was that they would sell everything through the internet. And the first category that they would sell would be books. Now, you know, that's Amazon, you know, and and basically David Shaw was going to start this business and wanted Bezos to be the head of this business within DE Shaw and Company. Uh, but Bezos said, no, I actually want to go and do it myself. And quite amazingly, David Shaw let him go and do that. He didn't sue him. He you know, said, oh, good luck to you and all the rest. And he took him for a walk in Central Park, tried to dissuade him and get him to do it within D. Shaw and Company, but Jeff said, no, I want to do it myself, started it in his garage, and everyone knows what happened. But, but you know, how extraordinary. If there had been no D.E. Shaw and Company, there would have been no Amazon, you know, and, and you and I would not have heard of Jeff Bezos. Unbelievably yeah. lucky in a sense, but unbelievably good in a, another sense because his formula, which was unbeatable prices, and fantastic customer service is what has defined Amazon. Makes it a very hard place to work, but mm-hmm. uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a jolly good idea, and a star business to boot. But but nevertheless, um, you know, if he hadn't have had that experience, he wouldn't have been successful. And yeah. likewise, Steve Jobs. I mean, Steve Jobs achieved a great deal inventing the Macintosh and all the rest of it, but he got thrown out of his company. Again, you recognise some of these themes of a massive setback for a man who thought he was one of the enlightened ones. He'd started the bloody company, you know, and he got thrown out of it by, effectively, by someone who um, had worked for Pepsi. And, you know, he thought of himself as a brilliant marketeer, and he was a brilliant marketeer. But, but, you know, basically, he knew nothing about computers. He knew everything about fizzy drinks, you know. And so, you know, he was thrown out of his company. How did he get back? It, it, was, it was a series of accidents that happened in the 19, well, 1995, 1996, 1997. And mm. he just basically took a huge opportunity which presented itself to go back to Apple when Apple was about to go bankrupt. Uh, and, you know, you can, you can see that that was his transforming experience. It was those events that happened in the mid to, um, well, as I say, between 1995 and 1997, um, where he had founded a company which, for reasons shouldn't have been successful, but was very successful, which which then was bought by Apple, and that brought him back into the fold. Um, mm. Anyway, that's, 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 mm. that's a fascinating story and all the rest of it. But the point about transforming experience is not that, you know, these people set out to have transforming experiences. They, it, they happen by accident. For my readers, however, for anyone who's thinking about their career and does want to be unreasonably successful, mm. you have to have a transforming experience. There's no way around it. You know, you are not going to be exceptionally successful unless you have one. So if you, if you um, haven't had one, you've got to think about how to engineer that. And none of the people in my book engineered it you know, planned planned their transforming experiences, but readers can. So I hope that there'll be a lot more unreasonably successful people. And there are various other strategies which were followed by the people that that I describe in the book. Um, so, so these are amazing narratives, Richard. How close do you think you've come to finding the silver bullet for the psychology and road to success? Then, well, or you know, it's, success. it sounds very immodest. Oz, but I think I've got it. <laughs> I think right, I've done. Wow. I think I've done what Malcolm Gladwell didn't do, uh, and uh, you know I quite like to sell more copies of books than he's done. Uh, so yes, I, <laughs> I think I, th- I think I think uh, I think it could be it could be incredibly successful. But but book publishing is such a crapshoot. You know, it's it's you know it's in the lap of the gods and. Um, Mm. You know, I may be completely delusional, but I think anyone who's interested in being outrageously successful, unreasonably successful, whatever you want to call it, 
uh, should should buy a copy of the book. Not only that, I think it's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's just studying these people's lives. Yeah, I got a great kick out of it, and I, you know, and I would, I would, Mary Curie is another one. I would say, well, you know, what was her transforming experience? Very, very interesting. You know, she had a transforming experience, and I, I was got very excited about it. Her transforming experience was meeting Pierre Curie, who was actually a professor, keyed into the magic circle of of uh, physics and chemistry in Paris, in uh, in the mid. 1990s. So it seems that everything happened in the. Uh, sorry, this was the 1890s. I say I'm not very good with, with. Uh, mm. Everything seems to happen in the 90s, whether the 1890s or the <laughs> 1990s. And you know, it was it was a love affair, but it was you know it made her respectable because there there was this sort of um, model accepted within scientific circles in Europe at that time, which was a husband and wife team. And women, of course, you know, had a really tough time trying to um, make progress in any sphere at that time. But if they were part of a husband and wife team, they were respectable. And therefore, you know, I mean, she was a much, much better physicist than Pierre Curie, who was pretty good himself. She was highly intuitive, like like Einstein as well. And she discovered radium and and, uh, radiography and all that sort of stuff. She saved... Mm -hmm an estimated million lives in the First World War by having mobile radiography units, which would go to the battlefields, X-ray people, and then see where bullets had lodged, and therefore the surgeons knew where they they should take the the bullets out. I mean, it's a quite extraordinary story of a woman. But it wouldn't have happened because she was planning to go back to her native Poland before she met Pierre. And just the fact of, of meeting him and falling in love, in love with him gave her access to laboratories and gave her access to other people who were the experts in, in that very fast developing field of chemistry at the time, uh, where people were intrigued by the characteristics of uranium. And she found that, in fact, it wasn't uranium. It was, it was actually radium, which was 900 times more radioactive uh, than... Uranium, and so you know, it wouldn't have happened if she hadn't met him. She, she'd have gone back to Warsaw. She'd have, she'd have been, you know, she couldn't get a, a, a job as a as a uh, professor in in uh, Poland because it was impossible because it was ruled mm. by the Russians who didn't let women go to university. Uh, and so, so you know, if she had not met this man, you know. Probably radium wouldn't have been invented, or certainly wouldn't have been invented very quickly, or, or discovered yeah. rather, not invented. But but you know, it's quite an extraordinary story. That was her transforming experience, in, and so it's on a, and so forth. It's you know, it's just it's, amazing that all of these people did have a transforming experience. Richard, you're hugely successful. What was your transforming experience? Going to work for the Boston Consulting Group was my transforming experience. I mean, it was just getting mm. getting access to those to those uh, concepts, uh, and you know, I believe in concepts. I think concepts are behind mm. success in business as in everything else. Um, so, understanding those concepts and the power of those concepts enabled me to be one of the founders of another consulting firm, which I think was my breakthrough achievement. Um, yeah. And um, you say I've been amazingly successful. I, you know, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I think, I don't think I've been unreasonably successful. I think that's still to come if it's going to come at all. <laughs> I think I've been, I, I think I, I'm, a, I'm a niche player. <laughs> I'm a niche player. I've written a couple of books that have been very successful. I've, I've helped to found a consulting firm which has, you know, been, a, you know, been very, very successful, but it's not McKinsey. And it's not the Boston Consulting Group, and it's not Bain and Company. So I think I'm a sort of middling successful person, but um, but I want to be unreasonably successful. So maybe you'll help me. And has the slant? Have you gone down more of a psychology slant now compared to your other books? Just listening into what you have to say here, how is this different to the books you've written in the past? In the main, yes, I think. Well, I, I think it's it's partly psychology, but it's partly history. Actually, I mean, I, I've yeah. just done a historical study of these people and, and isolated the reasons for their success. 
And the thing about these 20 people is that these nine landmarks that I describe are all the same. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's extraordinary that nearly all of them had, you know, shared these nine uh, attributes, which aren't really attributes, they're things that happened to them rather than things that they made happen in many cases, mm. like the transforming experience. Um, so, yes, I'm interested in that. But I'm also particularly interested in the unconscious mind and that's one of the, effectively, intuition mm. is one of the uh, landmarks as well. Somehow, each of these people got a bee in their bonnet about something. And if you track back to it, it a lot of it was intuitive rather than, yeah. than reasonable. So, yes, if that's psychology, that's psychology. But, but, I mean, the thing about the unconscious mind is nobody really knows what it is. <laughs> nobody knows what consciousness is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, neurologists have made... Great discoveries in the last 20 or 30 years. And I've, I've read a lot of the research. Uh, but mm. they can't answer basic questions like what is consciousness? Where does it come from? You know, where does intuition come from? Yeah. And uh, again, the historical approach is, is important. There's, a, there's a, a book by a woman called Nancy Andreessen, which I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in this area. It's called The Creative mm. Brain. And what yeah. she's discovered is that composers like Mozart and Tchaikovsky and uh, scholars, um, academics like Henri Poincaré, who was a mathematician in Paris in the 19... Again, the 1890s and the 1900s. And honestly, one, of the most, one of the most brilliant uh, academics and, and very, very... You know, he, he knew Einstein and he was, you know, he was mates with all of those sort of people. You know, a very very intuitive man you know all of those people and it applies to poets like Coleridge in the 1820s writing a poem called Kubla Khan which which apparently came to him in a dream and he said all he had to do was to sit down and write it you know there are just so many stories of really creative people whose stuff came to them inspiration I mean in our in our own time J.K. Rowling sat on, a, mm. sat on a train, which was um, not moving, it was not between Manchester and London, for four hours. She sat on the train and she had a kind of vision of Harry Potter. You know, she, yeah. she didn't know his name. She saw that he was on a train. He was going to a wizard school. He didn't know that he was a wizard. He was a scrawny little you know, kid. Uh, and she saw it all. You know, and and she when she got back to London, she she started to write her notes up. She didn't have a pen or anything on the mm. on the train. You know, it's a vision. You know, and these stories are just almost unbelievable. But they're so common if you actually look at highly creative people that you realise that these people thought of themselves as being sort of note takers from some mm. other force. And you know, no neurologist can tell you how that happens. And in fact, they don't really, they don't, in most neurologists are slightly offended by this because it's kind of like an X factor, <laughs> which, you know, well, you know, explain to me how Mozart got some of his music, which he says, you know, just basically he, he saw the whole thing. And, and it's the same, same story. You know, all he had to do after yeah. dreaming it was to write down the notes. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost yeah. unbelievable. Um, a fantastic book on this is um, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I don't know if you've picked that up at all. No, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. yeah, it definitely has a, a lot of kind of the, the latest neuroscientist thinking and, and why we sleep. So does the subconscious and the unconscious form a big part of, of, of your book? It's one of the nine landmarks, effectively, of intuition. Yeah. So it's it's one ninth of it, effectively. Um, and there's tools of how to um, utilize that then within the within the book itself. Yes, yes. I mean, I've got, wow. I've got, I've also got a very, a very good sort of further reading section, and and that is the thing which I recommend. You know, I mean, basically, a lot of the books that I recommend reading are relate to that chapter because I think it's great. What's the name again, please? Uh, Why we sleep by Matthew Walker. Uh, probably the most impactful book book I read last year, actually. Okay. Well, 
Again, I now recommend that to listeners to this podcast. Thank you, Oz. Uh, I've never heard of it. I mean, isn't that that fascinating? There are always people who, yeah, uh, not necessarily terribly well-known. Has it been a huge hit? I think it's it's been a blockbuster. And um, within the book, he talks about things like how somebody can practice and practice and practice the piano notes and they'll keep missing a specific note, but then they'll, go to sleep, they may play it in the head before going to sleep, but when they wake up the next day, they can play it perfectly. And that's the subconscious mind at work a lot of the time. Fantastic. Well, there's hope for me then. I wanted to be a concert pianist (laughs) when I was 16. And my music teacher told me I was no good. No, he didn't say I was no good. He said, you're you're good, but you're not good enough. And so uh, you might say that was a bit cruel, but it was, I mean, it meant that I didn't waste my time trying to be a concert pianist. But maybe that Maybe that's my next career. <laughs> the science they've got to now, I was quite surprised that there was that much information. So um, I, th- I think you'll enjoy it, Richard. Okay, um, thank you. Just moving on then, if that's that's okay. So your book sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, when's it being published? August the 13th. It was going to be the 11th of June, but because of the virus, it's been put back because uh, a lot of booksellers are closed or um, yeah, nearly closed. So, um, so August the thirteenth, and it will be published. And how big are you going on the launch, Richard? Are you going to be doing launch events I, I'm, in the UK? Uh, as you might imagine, Oz, I'm quite evangelical about this. I'd love to. I'd love to do a lecture tour and all the rest of it. And I, I would be happy to go, you know, to Asia, to America, to Australia, to various other places, Europe, obviously. But it depends on the book being a great success. There's no point in pushing water uphill, which is another one of my themes based on the 80-20 principle that, that, you know, there's no point unless the book, it sells very well to start with because tour organisers are not interested, the, the, the best ones anyway. So we'll just have to wait. So, you know, please, people, buy the book and give it, to a, give it away to a lot of your friends. And, and if you think it's good, uh, please, uh, please, when, you, when you've read it, tweet about it or tell your friends and all the rest of it because I do think it's a it's a very helpful book it's a helpful book for anyone who wants to be really really successful and also even for people who don't care about success uh it's fascinating the stories in it are absolutely fascinating they're not stories I've invented I've just studied the history of these people so I want to move on to you Richard and um you've obviously had a, a really bright sort of um, career and life. Um, let's uh, start off with your lifestyle, Richard. You seem to be a bit of a sun seeker and have a sunshine-filled life. Every time I email you, you're um, somewhere else like South Africa, New South Wales, Portugal, Gibraltar, to name just a few. Um, what did it take you to achieve and decide on a work-life balance and the movement that you have now? It was just a decision. I mean, obviously, you need to be financially independent to to mm-hmm. have homes in different places. But actually, you don't these days. You can go and stay in places on Airbnb. So maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, it helps to have money. But <laughs> but what you really need is a determination to pursue the life that you want. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's basically what I did. I, I, I did L.E.K. for six years. And I was still in my 30s. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not, you know, I... I for 10 or 15 years, I'd done what many people do, which is I'd worked 80 hours a week, six days a week, probably. Uh, sorry, what did I say? I'd, I'd worked, yeah, I'd worked very, very hard, very long anyway. Um, and I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And, right. uh, you know, I said, you know, I don't like, I don't like it when I can't go outdoors and play tennis or ride my bicycle or walk with a dog or whatever. You know, so I'm going to be in places that are sunny. It's just a decision that you make. And if you make that kind of decision, you can you can live by it. And that that has made me a lot happier. Uh, It's, you know, most people don't care about the weather. I mean, all the psychological surveys show that people who live in sunny places are not happier than people who don't. And I think that's because they've always had it and and they take it for granted. Um, But I do think it's true that particularly if you're a Brit who grew up where the weather isn't fantastic uh, and you go somewhere... (laughs) living in Manchester. (laughs) Well, uh, you showed me a nice picture of Manchester. It looked really sunny and nice the other day. So, of course, there are are exceptions. And, of course, it's not the most important thing for most people. But it's 
for superficial people like me, it's pretty important. You just have to decide to do what you want to do. And most people just don't think about things like that. Most people just yeah. sort of take, take, you know, they do what they've always done or their friends and neighbours have always done. Oz, we're going to have to wrap this up because I have a rule yeah. that, that I shouldn't talk for more than an hour or whatever. I tend to, I think I get okay. a bit boring after that. But so if you've got any yeah. other questions, we can just have another couple of minutes if there's anything else you want to finish. Yeah, okay, with. let's do some quick fire ones uh, then. So if you could have a huge billboard with anything on it, uh, getting a message out to millions, what would it say? Well, this one's very, very easy because, yeah. in fact, um, at the beginning of my book, I've got three quotes. I want three billboards, please. <laughs> uh, the first one, which is kind of a bit related to the book, is the future is a land of which there are no maps. The future is a land of which there are no maps. And it's kind of a bit ironic because um, I've given people a map of the future in my book. But of course, um, the person who said this is absolutely correct, A.J.P. Taylor, the historian, uh, Alan Taylor. The future is a land of which there are no maps, which means that you have to create your own f future, basically. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not there, you know, it's basically, it's, it's all up for grabs. Um, <clears throat> one of the people that, that Taylor studied, and one of the people who's my t one of the 20 very successful people is Otto von Bismarck, who was the most mm. successful, I believe, European statesman of the 19th century. He reunified Germany, which before he did that was a collection of uh, small states, mainly small states, and a couple of big ones, including Prussia. But um, he um, basically changed the map of Europe and then he kept the peace in Europe once he'd achieved his uh, united Germany for 20 years after that. And he said something which um, was his whole philosophy of how to achieve things, which says, man cannot create the current of events. Man cannot create the current of events. He can only mm. float with it and steer. So it's a nice sort of pictorial thing. I, on the billboard, I'd like to have someone in a canoe or something like that. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so true. And Bismarck was determined to uh, reunite uh, Germany but he didn't know how to do it and he just reacted to events and what events played into his hands in the late, I think the century, right? 1860s, yes, the late 1860s, right. when Napoleon III actually decided that he needed a success in foreign policy after some failures in Mexico and other places. And so he tried to um, create a war between France and Germany. The king of Prussia, William I didn't want to go to war, but um, Bismarck managed to um, edit a response to a particular um, very unreasonable demand of, of Napoleon III. The king wrote a reply to this in what became known as the Ems Telegram in 1870, mm. uh, saying yeah, conciliatory words and all the rest of it. Bismarck cut all of those out sent the telegram back to Napoleon. Napoleon declared war on Germany. All of the small German states who didn't really want to be part of the greater Germany then got up in arms because it was France versus Germany. They were German nationalists themselves. And so all of those small states then agreed to send armies along with the Prussian army to defeat the French. It took a matter of weeks. You know, it was, it was it, it, you know, this was what Bismarck had wanted to do for 10 years. And he didn't know how to do it. And, and somehow he just saw that this was an opportunity, this particular telegram, just editing out a few words made all the difference. And just extraordinary Amazing. thing. So I like Bismarck's approach, which I call strategic opportunism, which combines two things which are generally thought to be totally contradictory. One, one is absolute determination about strategy, where you, you have iron determination to do something. But the second yeah. is being totally flexible on the means and just taking them as they come along, which was his strategy. And then the final billboard, which I want, is um, the Apple Think Different commercial, which they put in newspapers in 1997. Fantastic. The yeah. people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. And this is another theme of the book, which is that, um, you know, Steve Jobs had this phrase, which he lifted from Star Wars, called the reality distortion. 
Um, and, uh, you know, his view was that, you know, nothing was impossible. If you believed that you could change things, you could change things. And again, I suppose that's a, you know, that is related to psychology. Uh, and, uh, you know, I explore in my final chapter how you can distort reality. But it's true, you know, most people don't think that they can change the world, and so most people don't. And as the, the word say, the people who are crazy enough and, you know, deluded, <laughs> they're, they're wrong uh, to think that they can change the world. I mean, they don't stand much of a chance, but they, they manage to convince themselves that, that it's possible, and if they do that, there's a good chance that they can change the world. So the reality, that feeds back to the first of those billboards, which is the future is a land of which there are no maps. The map has not been designed yet. Uh, you have to design yeah. your own map. So, um, uh, Oz, thank you very much indeed. I think we'd better stop there. I've broken my no, rule. Absolutely fantastic. So um, I was really excited about the book before, but now you know you've just blown it out of the water completely. Richard. So really looking forward to that. I just want to say that your newly launched podcast has been one of the most interesting and different on the web. If people haven't signed up to it already, it's available on YouTube and SoundCloud. Highly rec recommend it. So Richard, you've been a delightful guest. Thank you very much. Thanks, Oz. Where do I send a check to? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, goodbye.